Hi, welcome to the Phoenix Athens podcast. Our mission at Phoenix Athens is to make disciples who experience, enjoy, and display God's love and glory. Our goal with this podcast is to provide a way for you to learn and grow with us as a church body. If you're more visual, you can watch these sermons online on our YouTube channel linked below. We hope this episode encourages and edifies you. Thanks for tuning in. Would you guys go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God? We're going to be starting Ephesians 4, verse 17. Um, And before I begin, uh, I I want to, I I need to make a disclaimer. Um, For any of you in the room, I can't quite tell, but uh, I know that there's always younglings that are in the room, and... um, if you're re-listening to this or re-watching this uh, on one of our media outlets later, and you have younglings within earshot, I want to give a disclaimer um, that I'm going to be talking about some very heavy topics today. Um, in the conversation of spiritual warfare, I will be covering different forms of immorality, and I will be covering the ends by which sometimes the enemy accomplishes its goal in kill, steal, killing, stealing, and destroying, and even getting individuals to accomplish those purposes by their own means. While I won't go into heavily graphic um, detail about these, I will be talking about them. It is heavy, and I will be providing the hope that is on the other side, but I understand as parents, sometimes you feel like these topics need to be uh, brought up or broached with your children by you, and that's okay. And so I just want to give that as a preparation. I'm going to pray in a minute. Uh, if, if it's just not the right time, then your student is more than welcome to join our seed ministry today. Um, but I want to just let people know that. Uh, this might be um, one of those episodes on our podcast that has an explicit next to it. I don't know. Um, but listen, we have to talk about this stuff. We cannot shy away from it. So let's get started. We're continuing our conversation about spiritual warfare. And this is week maybe five or six in the conversation where we have been talking about there is a very real spiritual realm that exists, whether we see it or not. Whether we believe it or not, it exists. And we're in the middle of it. We live our lives in the middle of it. And we are talking through what does that look like? How do we engage in spiritual warfare? What's our role? Who is the enemy? What can the enemy do? What are things that we can do to fight, to stand strong, to be victorious? And last week, I went over a couple of open doors, mainly to start the topic of open doors to spiritual attack by the enemy in our lives, mainly the open doors that I started with were our understanding of sin, of righteousness, and of God's forgiveness. And if you didn't watch that, I want to encourage you to go back and watch it. In fact, if you haven't seen any of the sermons or missed any of them, it's not because I want you to hear my voice. I promise you, I don't care to hear my voice. But a lot of what we talk about builds And so it may seem like I kind of gloss over something that you may think, man, there's more to that. Well, it's probably because we already talked about it and I'm building upon it. So I want to encourage you to go back and do that. 
But today we're continuing our conversation, and we won't even exhaust it fully. We'll come back and finish it next week of the different open doors that we leave in our lives that allow the enemy to come in and wreak havoc in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, in our lives. So I want to begin with Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, which says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Father, we thank you for the word that you have for us today. I pray that you would soften each and every one of our hearts and minds Open our ears to hear your truth, what you have for us today. Pray for freedom this morning. Jesus, you came to set the captives free. So I come alongside your purpose, your heart, your desire. Use these words to set people free this morning and equip the people in this room to use the words that you have for us to set others free. Be glorified in everything that's said, in everything that's thought. Protect our minds from the enemy trying desperately to distract us this morning. May we hear the truth, and may that truth set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On average, since the Golden Gate Bridge was built some 90 years ago, an average of 20 people have jumped the 225-foot drop to end their lives. That's about 1,800 people. Of that number, only 29 people have ever survived. There was an article that was written a number of years ago by someone who interviewed all 29 of those survivors. The most striking fact that was brought up from those interviews, from all 29 survivors, was that every single one of them, 29 out of 29 of the people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge to end their life, but survived, every single one of them immediately regretted their decision as soon as they jumped. One of those survivors, a man by the name of Ken Baldwin, 
recalls the thoughts he had of the, uh, in the four long seconds it takes to hit the waters. Everything in my life that I thought was unfixable was totally fixable, except the fact that I had just jumped. Another study conducted around the same topic instead focused on the 515 people that had intended to jump but were stopped just before they did it, usually by police. What's really interesting uh, about that is that there was a staggering fact of less than 7% of the 515 people that intended to jump but were stopped before they jumped, less than 7% ever went on to end their lives. Over the rest of their lives, until the study was done, only 7% of 515. That means that 479 of the 515 people who believed at that one point that doing that was the inevitable, necessary ending to everything realized that that wasn't true. They came to realize that it was a lie. About a year ago, last week, I received a phone call asking me to come to the house of parents who had a daughter who was a young lady in her 20s who had been dealing with all kinds of stuff. She had been involved in substance abuse, in particular alcohol abuse, she had been in and out of really unhealthy relationships, sexual immorality. She had this really unhealthy, unusual fascination and fetish for the occult and for dark things. She had a whole closet full of really dark Halloween-type masks and stuff. And she had gotten to this point where she had been saying some rather demented-sounding phrases and comments to her family and to her friends. And it culminated one night when she said, you know, today's a good day to die. Then she locked herself in her parents' hallway bathroom, took a hold of one of her father's handguns, and ended her life. About a week and a half after the funeral is when I received this phone call because different members of the family at the funeral and after the funeral had begun talking about the things that were going on. And one of the things that started coming up out of nowhere, out of different members of the family that were afraid to say it because they thought that they were crazy, was that at least four of them had seen some sort of figure in the house some sort of dark, shadowed figure when there was nobody in the house. They had seen something, and they felt this presence in the house over and over. The parents would recall that after the funeral, they had taken this table or this, this cabinet and blocked off that hallway bathroom so that nobody would ever go back in there. But during the night, the light in the bathroom kept getting turned on, although the cabinet was in the front. There was nobody else in the house, and it would keep happening. They felt unsafe in their own home 
They felt this looming darkness in their home, and they did not want to be in their home, but they had built their home, and they had no idea what to do. All they knew was something evil was in their house. So they called me and Mike Bach to come. Now, I'm going to return to the end of this story. I'm not trying to leave you on a cliffhanger. And I'm not trying to scare you. This is not some sort of campfire spooky story to scare you into what the enemy can or can't do. But the question should cross your mind, how did that thing get in their house? Is it actually possible for something that scary, something that spooky to get inside of our houses and inside of our homes and inside of our safe places? Is that possible? And I answer with a very real physical response to depict a very real spiritual metaphor and reality. Where doors are left open in a house, anything and everything can walk through it. So that's why today it is important for us to talk about any open doors that exist in our lives, in our hearts, that we are leaving ourselves open and vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Again, we've talked about demonization and oppression and all of these things. I don't care what term you want to use today. We're going to talk about how we, taking up the full armor of God, how we can stand strong to realize we don't have to be victims. We have the ability to recognize and do something about open doors in our lives that we are allowing and almost inviting the enemy to wreak chaos and havoc in our lives. I want to begin um, by, by, by kind of walking through that when I think about the illustration of our hearts, of our bodies, we, we, we've walked through scripture that says, or do you not realize that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit? Right, a house, a temple, like this is, this, is our, this is our temple, this is our house. In that illustration, we have the open doors that we're dealing with. And I thought of, I, I couldn't help but remember, I don't know it, how common uh, like screen porches with screen doors are, uh, or, or just like screen doors in general are today and, and how they build houses. But I, I remember a, a couple of like faulty screen doors growing up. Maybe you had a grandma who had one of these types of faulty screen doors. Uh, there's the one that's like, like the latches is messed up and the, and the door is so light that any strong breeze that comes through will just blow that door open, right? It just bl- it blows through. Any strong wind of wisdom, air quotes for the podcast, that comes along can just blow that door right open. It seems right. That seems good. And the door opens. Or maybe... Your grandma or your neighbor had one of those screen doors that it had been opened so many times that the hinges were so rusty and so bad and the, and the, the spring was, had been sprung so many times that when you, when you open it, it, like, it can't even close all the way because it had been opened so many times. You guys... Are you smelling the spiritual metaphor that I'm laying out here? 
we are unnecessarily opening ourselves to attack chaos and destruction in our lives. I want to talk through, I think we'll get through three today, open doors. The first one that I want to talk about is habitual sins, because this one covers a multitude of of sinful decisions that we make often that create within our lives an open door to be attacked by the enemy. Uh, I love the way that uh, uh, this this pastor and writer kind of described and set up the situation. Um, As I was preparing for this, I came across this. It says, it begins with a choice of your own making. You decide to indulge in something you know is wrong, but at the end of the day, it appeals to the flesh and your desire, so in order to gratify it, you do it. In the process, you are likely deceived into either thinking that it's not that big of a deal or that you can control it. Just this once. Just this once. This false sense of control works because in the beginning, you can stop if you want to. The problem is, you just don't want to. So there's no realization that you're even in trouble yet. Do you realize this? You keep indulging in that desire until the repetitive decision to sin eventually becomes a trap. At some point, you cross an invisible threshold where the sin seemingly controls you. From that moment on, you've become convinced that stopping is no longer an option. You are a slave to that which you have obeyed. What's wild in this conversation about habitual sin is you're expecting me to get up and talk about all of the spiritual components of that, and those are real, and we for sure are going to talk about that. But here's what's wild about how you were created physically. Your body was created very creatively. Your mind is wildly complex beyond I think we will ever be able to understand. But see, when you mix our flesh and our own desires together with the lies and the lures of the enemy, our mind has the ability to create processes that become habit. When we engage in something and gratify something over and over and over again, it physiologically creates pathways in your brain. The synapses are, are, are creating and forming a quick route to that which we desire. And when we do it over and over and over, it becomes easier and easier mentally, physically, to desire and immediately go to the decision, I'll do it. The good news is habits can be changed. That can be used in the positive, the way it's supposed to be used. But we have to realize that habitual sin is not just this spiritual, oh, I can quit when I want to quit, oh, it'll be fine. Is that the deck is stacked against you the more and more you engage in it. Even physically, on top of spiritually. But I want to make sure that when I say that habitual sin is an open door to the enemy, that you don't hear me saying that if I just engage with sin every once in a while, then it's okay. The the real danger only comes when I habitually engage it. Don't hear that because I'm not saying that. In fact, there's two examples that I think of uh, when I think about this topic, Um, not in scripture, but they're just, as I try to use illustrations that we understand. 
And forgive me, they are going to be extreme, but they're just the examples that I think of. Number one, fishing. This one's maybe not extreme. It's just a little weird. But fishing. Often, many times, there will be bugs and worms that fall into the waters that fish will eat. They see it. They desire it. They want it. And they eat it. But sometimes there's a hook on the other end of that desire. And it leads unto devastating consequences. And what seemed like it was okay and fine and not a big deal suddenly became a seemingly inescapable deal. Now, it may have been the fish's 500th time that there was a hook on the end of that worm, but it also could have been the first time. The second example that I think of is heroin. For sure, the more you use heroin, the more devastating, long-lasting consequences it will have in your life, physically, relationally, mentally, all the above. But there's also many people who die the very first time they ever try heroin. It is not wrong to be fearful of sin because you understand that it could have devastating consequences. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to say, I don't want to engage in sin because I've seen how the enemy has grabbed a hold of other people's lives, and I don't want that. It's not wrong to say, I have no idea what is tied to, what hooks are involved. It's not wrong, but it's also not the full response. It's also not the full reason why we don't engage in those sins in the first place. As I talked about last week, God saved us for a love relationship with him. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to keep doing those things that I know that God hates. I don't want to keep slapping him in the face. I don't want to put unholy sins in the temple and force the Holy Spirit to have to dwell together with that. I don't want to sing praises with my mouth and then, as Scripture says, return like a dog to its vomit with the same mouth. There's a greater reason why we don't engage in habitual sin. So I'm not just trying to scare you into not sinning because there can be devastating consequences beyond what you even realize and beyond just the, oh, I feel relationally separated from God. It can open us up to all kinds of attack. It may not be the 500th time. It might be the first. But we don't sin because we have been invited into a love relationship where we show our love for he who died for us and choosing not to sin. Okay, so I, I say that um, because I want you to understand why I'm walking through these things, um, why, I'm, why I'm sharing it this way. Um, there's a very real concept of maintaining a fear of the Lord and how he has called us to be holy as he is holy, and that we will give, have to give an account for ourselves to God for everything we say and everything we do. Romans 14, 12 reminds us of that. Again, we want to love the Lord in the way that we live as a reason why we don't 
continue or even engage in in the first place, habitual sin. But habitual sin will continue to be an open door in your life to allowing the enemy access to wreak havoc. That's number one. Number two, substance abuse. Without going into too much depth on this one, there's two reasons that I want to point out in how substance abuse, whether it be alcohol, drugs, or even some of the hardcore prescription drugs or prescription medication, how they can be open doors for the enemy in our lives. Number one, when we use them to provide for us something that God was intended to provide for us, including, hear me, escape. He's supposed to be your mighty fortress. You're supposed to escape under the pinions of his wings. He's your strong tower. When this is all shaky ground and difficult and hard, he is the one that you are meant to escape unto. Simply put, this is a repeated action of idolatry. When we just want to feel good or feel that high or just forget the world, we are turning to counterfeit substances to produce something for us that God is supposed to produce. I promise you, there is no high like the, the most high. I promise you, when you encounter the love of God in a real way that is very tangible and available for you that he wants you to experience, that produces within you something that nothing in or of this world can produce. Nothing. When you are used by the Lord to engage with somebody else and help lead them to he who sets them free with his truth, that's like a cloud nine experience. That is a high that nothing can reproduce in this life. Because you, as you help them encounter him, you together are also encountering him in the moment as he is working in you and through you to be reminded that, man, those weren't my words. Those were his words. And that was amazing. And to see the look on somebody's face, to see the, the, the veil torn from their eyes, to see the, light, the spiritual light bulb come on, to see them surrender, to see the manifestation of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life, of peace come over them, joy come over them, love come alive within them. There is no high like that that any drug can produce. There's none. There's none. I'm telling you. When you're going through a hard time and life is really tough, we were designed to take that before God and depend upon him for the strength to make it through. See, perhaps the reason why we keep going back to those substances isn't just because some of them create a very physiological addictiveness. Maybe it's also because those things never actually can provide the things that we were looking for in the first place. They can never fully, completely, truly provide what we're really looking for. So we have to keep going back to try again or to forget again. God is not a God of forgetting, except when it comes to your sin. When you surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior and repent of your sin, of that he will separate as far as the east is from the west from you. 
but he's not a God of forget. He's actually a God of remember. Even in the hard times, remember how I delivered you through that. Remember who I am so that the next time you come upon that situation, you'll trust in me again. God is not a God of forgetfulness. So substances that are used to cause us to forget are not of him. It's not the purpose he designed. Number two, the way that substance abuse creates open doors in our lives is when we use them to loosen up, which is really just another way of throwing all control of your mind and your body to whomever or whatever is there to receive it. Giving over control of your mind and your body is like opening all of the doors and all of the windows of your house, of your temple, and saying, come one, come all. Usually, it will lead you to do things you would never do in your right mind. And usually, you would never look back on those things or stand before the Lord proud of those moments. When we do this, when we just turn to substances to loosen ourselves up, to relax our minds so we're not as, you know, righteous, if I really got down to it, oh, my righteousness is getting in the way. Right? I just need to loosen up. Or I just, I'm just struggling. I just have a hard day. I just need to unwind and, and release. When I'm going to those things to do that and I relinquish control over my mind, we shouldn't be surprised when we open all the doors of our body and our lives and our mind and the enemy walks in. We shouldn't be surprised when evil walks in through a wide open door. This again is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, don't be drunk with wine. Why? Because it leads to the acts of darkness. He was talking about verses before that. When we just get drunk with, with wine, we're releasing control of our, of our body, of our functions, of our thinking, of our protection, of our safeguards. We're just handing, laying them down, handing them over, which leads to actions of darkness, which we're to have nothing to do with. But he gives the antidote immediately, doesn't he? Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Walking in him leads to life and acts of righteousness. Habitual sin, substance abuse, and because it's a day of, you know, lighthearted conversations, (laughs) sexual perversion and pornography. Many years ago, I heard a pastor say that sin will always take you further than you ever thought you would go and make you become someone you never wanted to be. It's funny looking back now how easily we personify sin and its ability to lead us from the inside out, but so readily rejected the notion of an unclean spirit being able to do that. But that's aside from the point here. Sexual perversion and pornography are a great example of this statement that the pastor made. And it will take you further than you ever thought you would go and become someone you never wanted to become. I have unfortunately heard too many men and women come to me in utter brokenness over this topic. What started out as simple 
pornography, if there even is such a thing, suddenly wasn't enough. See, sin is never satiated. Sin is never satisfied. It must have more. And the only way to satisfy its cravings is through deeper and more twisted versions of it. Because the sin you already gave ground to before is not enough anymore. It wants more. It must destroy more of you. I've had multiple occasions of people confessing that their cravings were no longer satisfied by images of traditional intimacy, air quotes again, and soon they suddenly found themselves addicted to homosexual pornography or different variations involving more aggressive displays or even violence. Pretty soon, that wasn't even enough. Something new is needed, something forbidden, something taboo. maybe even something underage. And then pretty soon, these types of fetishes can no longer be satisfied over a screen, but they must be gratified in person. And the downward spiral of destruction goes on and on. If a person is married, intimacy with their spouse often becomes ungratifying anymore, which creates division. In the marriage, and if left undealt with, it may lead the person to find, to find satisfaction elsewhere. Even erotic novels can lead individuals to long for scenarios that simply aren't realistic, and lead them and leave them feeling like they have to look somewhere outside of God's given means for a very God-given and real drive. By the way, to satisfy their cravings. There are so many avenues that this road can take you, and none of them leads to life. None of them leads to actual and lasting satisfaction, joy, happiness, bliss, none of it. They are all a mirage, a lie, a lure. I don't really think I have to do much convincing on this one. For anyone to realize, or who has anybody who's ever indulged in any of these avenues, I feel like all I have to ask is simply, did you feel closer to God after you did it or further? Is this uncomfortable? Good. It should be. Because if you belong to a perfect, righteous, and holy God, none of this has any place within you. Proverbs 7, oof. Proverbs 7 paints a gruesome illustration as it, as it personifies uh, sexual immorality as an adulterous prostitute seeking a man. Verse 18 says this, the, the, the adulterous prostitute says this, come let us take our fill of love till morning. He talks about how he, see, he looks out in the city and he sees a man wandering the streets looking for the adulterous prostitute, and she's ready for him. She has laid out the place. She's laid out, laid out raisin cakes and perfumes, and she's ready for him. But he so vividly in verse 24, verses 24 through 27, gives us an understanding that I want you to take to heart 
in all sexual immorality, I want you to take this view to mind. Listen to what Solomon says here. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways, sexual immorality. And although he's talking to sons, this is for sons and daughters. Sexual immorality. Do not turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Listen to this. Verse 26. Do we have it? There it is. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. What looks so enticing in the moment. I want you to see. I almost, I want you to take the most graphic, gruesome Hollywood version of something demonic that I hate, by the way, and I always turn my head. But I actually, in this moment, I want you to take that image that you've seen, the most gruesome one that you've seen, and imagine whatever it is that you're looking at or thinking about, that's what's behind the veil. If you're scared of spiders, I want you to imagine the most ginormous, disgusting, dangerous spider who has built a hole in the ground and is sitting there waiting for you to come close before it pounces. That's the idea. That's the, that's the image I want you to put in your mind of how dangerous sexual perversion and pornography is. It is not to be messed with. It is not to be gone and flirted with. So I've talked through habitual sins today. I've talked through uh, substance abuse, and I've talked through sexual perversion and pornography. But you know me. I, w- I refuse to leave us there with, well, here's the bad things. Don't do it. How do we deal with these things? How do we deal with open doors like these? and many others that we will discuss. How do we escape from these things and close those doors in our lives? We need to start by understanding that the reality is, if we are struggling with these things, we have become slaves to sin. I don't like that, Pastor. Does it rub you wrong to think that as a believer, you could be considered a slave to sin? They don't understand. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm, 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 I'm freed from sin. I'm redeemed. I'm saved. Jesus died. I'm not a slave to sin. Well, let's listen to the words that Jesus himself says. John chapter 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I tell you, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. In Romans 6, Paul charged uh, the believers in Rome to remember that Jesus died to save us and deliver us from being slaves to sin. Therefore, we should leave that old life behind. And he reminds us that a person is a slave to whoever or whatever they are obedient to. Although we are set free from the eternal penalty of sin, it is clearly possible, as seen in the fact that Paul is trying to convince people who are already believers, have already been delivered of the eternal punishment of sin, that they need to... Go, they, they can't go back to their old lives. They need to put on the new life. 
That when Jesus died in our faith, when we came to salvation in Jesus, we were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a new life. We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We have to put on the new man. Just as Jesus rose again unto life for God the Father, so do we. Although we were slaves to sin, here's the good news. We can become slaves to righteousness. And for some of us, that might even seem like a, wait, what? I don't, what do you mean slave to righteousness? I, I understand slave is a, is a hot word over the past history of the world. <laughs> I love that word that's, that's used there. So it's a bond servant, and it even can include people who choose to become indebted to another. We can choose to belong wholeheartedly to a master in Jesus. That's why he's called the Lord and Savior of our lives. He didn't just save us from those sins. He's our Lord. Paul's reminding them and attempts to convince the Roman church to not slip back into slavery to sin by obeying sin in choosing to sin. Let me read just a couple of his words in Romans chapter 6. I think we have Romans chapter 6. Let's start with um, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Amen. We're back up to verses 12 and 13. What does he say? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So part of this process is presenting ourselves, our members, our, everything that we are unto God and our life and our body as instruments for righteousness. So there's a degree of being transformed and being received and being used as an instrument or a vessel for righteousness. If we go back to the illustration of us as a house and we realize that we have opened a door somewhere along the way, we for sure need to make sure to close that door. But if you have an unwanted guest inside your house that came in through an open door and you just closed the door, you realize the problem's not solved Anybody ever had a, a squirrel make their way into their house before? If you just close the door, we're not done. And if you have a wife or children, they'll let you know. Men, you too. Some of y'all would jump up on a table. We need to not just close the doors. We need to evict all unwanted guests that we've allowed into our house. 
I don't like that, Pastor. It feels dangerous to insinuate that we could have evil within us without even realizing it. Again, I remind you, as I mentioned last week, that our sin is as unholy as the demons and evil spirits that try to lure us into committing them. Again, I remind you, as I mentioned last week, that it was not Satan and fallen angels that caused Jesus to have to go be crucified on the cross. It was your sins and my sins. (laughs) Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any offensive way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. Does it sound like there's a possibility that I'm just not focused on that which needs to get out of me? I'm not focused on the sin that I've been harboring or the partnerships that I've made? Search me, O God. This is a very good tactic. This is a very good tool to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal everything offensive within me, everything that doesn't look like him, didn't come from him, doesn't belong to him. I think this usually manifests in a number of ways. Like realizing that you just get really angry or easily agitated at things and at people from time to time. And I don't mean in the I didn't get enough sleep, I'm kind of grumpy way either. It might even look like extreme anxiety and worry and fear dominating your thoughts in a way that seems really excessive given the situation that you're feeling that way towards. It could be extreme sadness and depression and gloom that just seems to be dominating your thought life. I want to reiterate something I've mentioned before. When we talk about having unwanted guests in our temple, in our house, I think people struggle because they immediately jump to the idea of, I'm talking about demons. They jump to the term demons, and then from that point, they jump straight to usually the worst case of demonization, which is uh, in Scripture, we'd have like the, the, the man in the gatherings who had a legion of demons within him. Or we jump to the most uh, Hollywood-infused version of that idea. But again, I want to remind us, when we're talking about unwanted guests, on top of, hey, your sin is as unholy as the demons who try to get you to commit those sins are, you have to remember that. I also want to remind you that in Scripture, I think it's helpful to remember in this whole conversation about the spiritual realm around us, that the term demon is also interchangeably used with evil spirits and unclean spirits. I remember the first time that a friend of mine used a phrase, I'm about to say, I remember he said something to the likes of, man, I just realized that I've been operating in a spirit of fear. And I, I I didn't grow up in churches that I I grew up in church from the time I was one, but that wasn't like a common way that we talked. I didn't hear that a whole lot. Like, I remember thinking, that's kind of weird. You mean a spirit of fear. You were operating in a spirit of fear. Like, I just kind of thought that what he meant was he was just operating like an attitude of fearfulness. Like, he was just choosing not to trust the Lord. And so, like, his attitude was kind of fear, but as he continued to talk about how he was, his thought life was just dominated, like this, the spirit of fear was just like dominating his, 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 his thought life and his interactions with other people. And I began to realize like, wait a second, like an attitude 
Like if I had an attitude of fear, like that's the result of something else. Like that's like how could an attitude which is there because I'm making a decision and it's creating an attitude, how could then that how could that attitude be the thing that is controlling my decisions and keeping me from being able to think about anything else? There's got to be something more to this. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I didn't have the grid to understand that. But when we talk about, you know, he said, like, I, I, I was operating in the spirit of fear. Let's go to the opposite side again that we've talked about already. We've already mentioned that, for example, that somebody can operate in a spirit of wisdom. And we're like, yes and amen. We've already talked about how in Isaiah chapter 11 and in multiple places in the book of Revelation, it talks about the seven spirits of God that surround the throne or the seven spirits of God, one of which is the spirit of wisdom. Listen to me here. If somebody can operate in the spirit of wisdom, it, it doesn't really matter if you're believing that one of those like spirits that surrounds God's throne, being the spirit of wisdom, that God is sending that spirit. Whether we, I understand this is difficult to wrap your mind around, right? But like, it doesn't matter if we believe that God sends one of those spirits, the spirit of wisdom, to me and upon me, and I'm operating and being led by that spirit of wisdom in how I'm working out in my life. Or if you believe that the Holy Spirit, who is receiving the, the wisdom, is then... Uh, making it manifest in me and, 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 and uh, playing a role in how I operate in my life. It doesn't matter whether you're believing, hey, there's a spirit of wisdom that is at work within me, and maybe I'm not like necessarily uh, personifying that, just like spirit of wisdom, or there's the Holy Spirit, which I personify that, who's receiving the wisdom of the Lord and making it manifest in my life. Either way, we would all say, again, yes and Amen. But if I'm struggling with, let's just, for example, say spirit of lust, and it's leading me to act upon it. It doesn't matter if you see that lust as some kind of spiritual thing that is influencing you, or whether there is a personified being within you that has the assignment of lust and sexual immorality, and is at work in your life. None of it belongs to God. Therefore, if you belong to God, it doesn't belong to you, and it's got to go. Do you understand? what, what This is what I'm doing here. I'm trying to help us rise a little bit above, trying to trying to get down to the nitty-gritty of the theological. I have to understand the how-to. And before, because sometimes when we just get so focused, so bogged down into that and needing this control issue that comes to us, I have to fully understand it before I will even act to it. So sometimes we never even engage with it or act in it, therefore leaving our doors wide open because I have to understand this God who says, my ways are higher than your ways. Which really kind of, opens a new door of pride and control. I'm trying to get us to rise above to say, listen, if I can make this as simple as possible for each of us, as tangible and as, as how can I act upon it this week, is if it doesn't belong to God, it doesn't belong to you. 
That's as simple as I can put it. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. I want, I want to do something real quick. Has anybody ever had the thought? I'm not saying, maybe some of you very much have dealt with suicidal thoughts before. In the middle of a season of deep depression and darkness. But on top of that, has anybody even, when it didn't make sense, had some kind of thought like, you know, this world would be better off without me, or let's just finish this here, or even as somebody mentioned this morning, you were driving and a thought just came, why don't you just pull in front of that truck? It'll all be over. I wonder if anybody would be honest enough to just raise your hand if, if a thought like that has ever come across your mind. Look around the room. Here's what I want to say, two things. Obviously, you're not alone. But number two, where do you think that thought came from? God never said that. Amen. Ever. So if God's not the one saying it, I don't care what you on the label is saying it. It doesn't belong and shouldn't stay another moment. Yeah. Slam that door shut. Yeah. Yeah. We must revoke the permission we have given the enemy to take up residence in our lives. Amen. Now, I use this term on purpose. I prefer to use the phrase, we revoke the permission. I, there, is, there is a lot of people who, in describing this, and I completely understand why they, why they say what they say. They'll use the term like um, legal rights that the enemy has had in coming into your life and creating chaos. I understand that. You made an agreement. You bit the lure or, and or believe the lie, and it has created this downward spiral that has so warped your mind and caused you to act in certain ways that you're down that rabbit hole, right? And so now we're at a place where like, man, this has got to be dealt with, but they're talking about understanding and identifying the legal rights that that enemy has had in coming to your house because you came into agreement with it, right? I understand why they say that. I just... I don't use that because some of the people who use that terminology just when it comes to things like deliverance ministry, not for today, we'll get there, stick with us, stay in the sermon series, we will come to talk about all of those things. It's just that some of the ways that they handle, um, the people who use that phrase, handle the way that they, 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 they work to set people free, uh, I just struggle with some of the biblical basis, not having some of the biblical basis where they land. I'm not against the term, just for, for, for means of clarity, I would rather use the term revoke permission. Here's another reason why I want to use it. Because when I say we need to revoke permission, that insinuates I have authority. And you do. You have the authority to revoke the permission that you may have ever given in partnership to the enemy's lies and to the enemy's lures. And some of you may, may be struggling to believe that. I also like to use that phrase because the term legal rights, I was, I was a criminal justice major, I, just, I understand law and all these different things, and, and so in my mind, if we use the term legal rights, 
it like brings up this thought that I'm just, it's just going to be a long, drawn-out legal battle before we ever have hope of re- resolution. And that is not always the case. <laughs> it is. It can be. God blesses and honors 12-step programs. He also utilizes one-step programs. Amen. He does. There are many ways to freedom. The point is, get free. Get free. Get free. We must revoke all ties, all agreements that we've made. So a year ago, last weekend, Mike and I pull up to this house, and we call for the family meeting. It was like all of their family came for this. We sat down in, in the living room, and we began by sharing the gospel. We told them, listen, you guys have invited us here because of who we have within us and in partnership with your agreement and your authority here in this house. We fully believe that whatever is here will be removed. We have full confidence of that. But you need to understand a few things. We're not interested in coming and evicting something and then your life doesn't change and you reopen doors to invite it back in. So first and foremost, we led them through the gospel to make sure that all believe that Jesus really was the Lord and Savior of their lives. And then we expressed to them how important it was to make sure not to partner with the enemy, the lies or the lures, what you believe or what you do, but also to realize this house This was the realm over which God had given them the authority to reign and rule as he would reign and rule. They had authority in that house. And they had authority because he who is authority and he who is power was within them. That they could stand and say, no. All uninvited guests, get out in Jesus' name to break agreement with them. So we prayed through the house. We walked through the house. We would pray against the enemy declaring that he had no place, that nobody here was in agreement with his schemes or his beliefs at all, we would have them pray. Then we would pray blessings over the house and have them pray pray blessings. And they would speak out with their mouths the fact that they belonged to the Lord and anything that didn't could not stay. A year and a week later, that presence was never felt again. Has still not been there. Praise the Lord. In how we respond to open doors in our lives, we need to go back and figure out the problem, the loose springs, the worn hinges, and cut out getaways to those behaviors. We need to put locks on the doors as safeguards from you ever opening them back up. Imagine putting a padlock on a door that has not just a lever that you can open if you want to. Understand this. If there are open doors to your life, in particular, we've talked today about habitual sins, substance abuse, um, and sexual perversion and pornography. If any of those doors or anything that the Spirit is convicting you of in your heart during this sermon have been opened, we need to go back, close them, evict any partnership and remove and break off. I, this is the only time I use the word divorce. If you need to, in prayer, just divorce yourself 
from any agreement with the enemy? Do it. I often say, especially if, if I have those thoughts, like I'm just going to give you a practical tool of how I, I, I literally do it. If I have like anger that creeps in or frustration, I will often say, you are not of the Lord. You have nothing to do with me. You have nothing to do with the future that God has for me. You have nothing to do with my present. I have nothing to do with you. In the name of Jesus, depart from me and do not come knocking again. I will speak those words out. Again, use the spoken weapon you've been given against the enemy. Resist the devil. Use the spoken word of God to do it. But we have to realize that there are things that we do in our lives that we need to put safeguards to help ourselves in this situation. Again, we, the, the, the common thing is if, if, if somebody's struggling with, with alcoholism, we don't hang out in bars. Don't go there. And don't just put, I'm trying to give an illustration, don't just put those padlocks, you know, inside where it has like the little switch, unlock, lock. Put one of those ones that you have to put a key in to unlock and then give the key to the Lord. Give a key to somebody who will lovingly hold you accountable, who will walk alongside you. Lay down your pride and your shame that you've been struggling with this and find somebody who will love you enough to try to love you like God loves you, to walk alongside you in accountability. Whatever that open door, whatever that gateway has been to these struggles, deal with it. If getting on social media is the thing that starts one thing that leads to another, get rid of the social media. Can I give you a little secret? After a while, you're going to realize you're not really missing anything. Maybe I'm just getting old. I don't know. That was not a slight to any people who are older than I am who are on social media or not. (laughs) Rude by a year. (laughs) One of the reasons why we want to take time to walk everybody through spiritual warfare and why we're making it a point to talk about what the enemy can do, I said last week, I'm going to say this again, is because if I can get you to understand what the enemy can do, and maybe, just maybe, I can get you to understand what the Lord can do. As I was preparing for this, I had this moment. It was like the Lord invited me into a moment that we read about in Scripture where he sat on the hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and his heart was broken. And he looked at the people, and he said that they are like sheep harassed without a shepherd. And it just broke my heart because I felt like there are so many believers who have all these open doors that don't even know how to close them, that don't even know how to identify them, who are just allowing the enemy to come in and out of their lives and cannot figure out why they can't make advancements in their life. I need you to understand we are warriors in a spiritual battle. We are not just on the defense. Listen to me. Just please listen to Jesus. He said, when he asked his disciple, who do you say that I am? Peter responded, you're the Christ, son of the living God. 
And Jesus told him that that truth, on that truth, shall the church be established. That truth will be the rock on which the truth, uh, on which the, the church will be built. And then what did he go on to say? This isn't just a, and then it will be a great, magnificent, worshipful church that many people will come into. What does he go on to say? That not even the gates of hell will be able to withstand the church. That's true, and we celebrate that. But are we seeing it? For sure, not in the way I want to see it. I think it's because there's too many believers that can't get even close to the gates of hell, which Jesus said we will prevail over because we can't even figure out how to take authority in our own lives. We can't get beyond ourselves. And listen, that is not a word of condemnation. This is a word of promise from Jesus himself that if you can conquer and and, and, and advance in offense, in spiritual warfare, that not even the gates of hell will prevail against you, then you can certainly take authority in your body, in your heart, and in your mind. That's the future God has for you. Whatever is being spoken against that, in Jesus' name, I rebuke it in your mind right now with the word of God, with Jesus' very words. You have authority because he's already overcome and put to open display them to shame. But they lie and they bait and they lure to believe, to act upon, and run away from this God-given identity that you have. You are more than conquerors. So, Pastor, where do I even start? It's the same thing we've been saying since day number one that we've opened the doors to this place. Repentance. It is such a gift. It is the key to unlock the jail cell of your own struggle. Present your bodies as instruments of righteousness unto God. Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Can you pull back up the Ephesians 4 passage? Paul says it so many times. Go back. Verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. If it doesn't look like Jesus, put it away. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Phoenix Athens podcast. Be on the lookout for the next step challenges and bonus episodes. You can find additional ways to engage with our church on Facebook, Instagram, and our website linked below.